Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Bruna. And I'm Jade. And on this month's episode, we are focusing on craniosynostosis. Specifically, on what it's like to be a parent of a child with craniosynostosis. So a bit of background for you all. Craniosynostosis is when plates or sutures in the skull fuse prematurely. That's right. And this early fusion can lead to the skull developing often an unusual or different shape. And this shape can vary depending on which suture is affected and also how many. Yeah, so craniosynostosis is quite a complex condition which can present in many different ways. It can be non-syndromic or in fewer cases associated with additional syndromes or conditions. Also, there may or may not be an underlying genetic cause for craniosynostosis. It's different in each case. It does really vary. And in the UK, we're really lucky. We have a charity called Headlines Craniofacial Support. And Headlines are dedicated to supporting everyone affected by craniosynostosis, including parents and caregivers. And Headlines have estimated that craniosynostosis affects one in every 2,000 live births. So although it's considered rare, some may argue that it's actually not that rare. Yeah, exactly. And going back to the specific focus of today's episode, as we've talked about before on the podcast, parenting a child with a condition like craniosynostosis can present some challenges. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And that's what we've chosen to showcase today. We're very, very fortunate today to be joined by some wonderful people on the episode who will be able to shed some more light on this issue. Our guests today come from a range of backgrounds, and so we'll hear a range of perspectives, including the perspective of a researcher, of a charity worker, and of a parent of a child with craniosynostosis too. Very elusive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But yeah, let's hear from them. On the podcast today, we have a number of guests giving us really helpful insight into the topic of craniosynostosis and the potential psychological impact on parents and families. We have Nicola Stock, who's a senior research fellow at the Centre for Appearance Research, Nicola has made quite a few appearances on the podcast over the years and some of our more keen listeners may actually remember that Nicola's work focuses on craniofacial conditions such as cleft lip and palate, craniofacial microsomia and of course craniosynostosis. We also have Karen Wilkinson-Bell on the episode. Karen is the director of Headlines Craniofacial Support, a leading UK charity supporting those affected by craniosynostosis. And finally, we're very fortunate to be joined by Lucy, Chris and Michelle, who are all parents of children with craniosynostosis. So welcome, everybody. It's so good to have you on the podcast today. Hi. 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 So to get us started, and for our listeners who might not be familiar with the condition, I wonder, Karen, if you could tell us a bit more about what craniosynostosis is. Yes, hello. Um, Craniosynostosis is a condition where the plates in a baby's skull fuse together too early, usually, but, but not always before before they're born. Um, it can and it, and it often does occur on its own, but it it's also can be part of a wider and usually genetic condition or syndrome where other parts of the body, such as the hands, the feet, the spine and so on, are affected. Uh, things like APERT syndrome, Cruzan syndrome and so on. And it's um, officially classed in, in medical terms as rare. 
But in fact, one baby is born with some form of craniosynostosis almost every single day here in the UK. So it's really not as rare uh, as the term would, would suggest. And I wonder then, what does treatment and support look like for those affected by craniosynostosis in the UK? We're very fortunate here in this country in that we've got a very, um, over the last few years, that services have been um, uh, concentrated, if you like, in, in specialist um, centres around the country where a, a multidisciplinary t- approach is taken to craniosynostosis because obviously, depending on the type of craniosynostosis that a baby has, there will often be a need for different kinds of medical interventions. And so over the years, specialist teams have been brought together in um, units around the country. We've currently got five. We've got um, one at Older Hay Children's Hospital. We've got Birmingham, Great Ormond Street, John Radcliffe in Oxford, and the, most recently the Royal Hospital for Children in Glasgow. So those are the centres where children who have had a diagnosis, and diagnosis can take some time, in fact, with some uh, forms of the condition. But when a child has been diagnosed with craniosynostosis, generally they are then referred on to those specialist set, one of those five specialist centres around the country. And we are quite unique, I think, in, in, in many respects in having that sort of specialist system of care, of care here in the UK. Definitely sounds like, as you said, we're very fortunate in the UK with the care that, that is available. So for our parents today on the podcast, I wonder if you could share a little bit about what it's like to have a child with craniosynostosis and what that experience has been like for you. Hi, we're Lucy and Chris, and we, our eldest son was born with a form of craniosynostosis. He has metopic synostosis with trigonocephaly, which means the front of his forehead fused too early um, and left him with um, a skull that was shaped, causing some difficulties with normal growth of the brain. Um, so we had a diagnosis at six weeks old, but we'd had quite a tricky time before that. So for us, I think our journey into understanding what craniosynostosis was, was quite tricky. Um, and it was quite difficult at first to find the information that we needed to make an informed choice. Um, I was really fortunate that I came across the charity headlines and was able to use their helpline to really give me a better understanding of what our journey might look like and what support we might be able to access or what informa- where I could look for information. Um, to make sure that we were making the best decisions for us as a family. Um, And that was invaluable to me because we'd spent some time being given misinformation from different medical professionals who unfortunately just didn't have the knowledge or understanding of the condition that we needed as a family to be able to make the right choices. Um, So fortunately for us, um, even though we were under the care of the paediatrician, Uh, We had a GP who was incredibly supportive and understanding and was able to support us in getting on the right path for one of the specialist centres to take over the care for Monty's treatment. We were actually quite fortunate because the GP had experience uh, of a child in their own personal life who had craniosynostosis. So when we started talking about it and we started explaining what we wanted to be our referral pathway for Monty into one of the, the specialist centres uh, moving away from the local lead within within our area of the country. He was really proactive in doing that and and sort of that, that overrid a bit of that medical hierarchy where you said, look, I am going to write ahead of the paediatrician and get you where I know the right service will be there for you. And I think for us as a family, we 
we'd learned that actually the supra centres or the specialist centres, as I think they're now called, um, are funded directly. So we were entitled to be able to access that support. And I think initially I was really fearful of trying to ask for something that perhaps I shouldn't have been asking for. Um, and that was quite tricky because my internal voice was trying to tell me, yes, no, this is what you need to look for. But actually the professionals around me were giving me conflicting advice. And that was really, I think, really tricky for space to manage, yeah, wasn't it? it was. um, and then once we had the right support, it just really reaffirmed to us how amazing each of the specialist centres are and how much easier it is, actually, once you do get the right support, because everything happens in one place at once. You get the same message. Everybody in the room hears the same message, no matter how many people or how few people you need to have involvement with. Everything happened at the same time. and. Um, I think for us, our first initial experience of going to hospital was with Monty was for kind of initial discussions and um, considerations about him as an individual. Um, and that was a really long day. But actually, we left that day having everything that we needed um, to help us make an informed choice on behalf of our son, which I think is the bit that we struggled with, wasn't it, was that we were making decisions for him that he had no ability to kind of take part in but that would impact him lifelong so fortunately for us and um, because we were able to get the right support at the right time um our child accessed the support at the specialist center and is now just over six years post-surgery um and has had regular reviews since then um obviously every journey is different and our journey has included a few little challenges along the way requiring some extra support at different times um, but at each of those points, it was the same team. We were going back to the same place. The same. The hospital was familiar to Monty and he was able to get used to the surroundings and, and kind of expectations as what, to what was to come. And how about you, Michelle? Are you able to tell us a bit more about your family? Yeah. Hi. So um, my eldest child, Ruby, was born in 2009. And she was born by emergency C-section. And... Um, I can remember quite vividly um, Ruby being taken away um, with my husband at the time to, to have her checks. And then Andrew, my husband's coming back and the look of complete shock because the doctor had said that um, I had a baby daughter, um, but she had this wrong with her. And she pointed to um, like a dip above her nose. Um, and basically, Ruby had bicoronal um, craniosynostosis, so um, a, a skull was completely fused, and basically the, the skull at the front had pushed forward over her eyes. Um, so it's just from going from utter joy to um, complete shock, really, and just feeling of being numb. Um, so Ruby is basically, she's been diagnosed as having Mwenki syndrome and um, we're under older hay, the specialist team there. So we had our first um, appointment there at um, one month old and it was very um, daunting because we didn't know what to expect. And we walked into a room of 13 specialists waiting to see us and to examine our daughter and we just weren't prepared for that um but as soon as dr may uh, looked at ruby 
and he basically just said what it was that was wrong with Ruby, that she had craniosynostosis. And he just said, yeah, we can sort that out and she'll, she'll just have a normal, happy childhood. But up until, well, I know for that month, we just didn't know whether she was going to live, she was going to die, what was going to happen. So yeah, it was all very daunting and very new to us. And then she had her first operation at six months old. She she had the back of her skull removed and reshaped and replaced and distractors put in. And again, um, we weren't given any leaflets or information. Andrew, my husband, was just told that he had to turn the distractors twice a day using an implement that looked like an Allen key. Um, and again, it was just a feeling of utter shock, really, what we were doing to our child. And it's just, for us, um, we just sort of drifted into our old own world, you know. Um, we had the distractors removed after three months. And then at 18 months, you had the front of a skull removed, reshaped and replaced. Um, but we were just very lucky. Like Lucy said, we, we went to a familiar place. The nurses and the doctors were so familiar to us. Um and you just get the feeling that your child is the, the only child that they're interested in. Um, and you, you just can't help giving them um, your child to, you know, for them to operate on and see what they can do, really. Thank you for sharing, you know, such kind of hard experiences that you had so honestly with us and candidly with us. I really appreciate that. Both Michelle, your story, and Lucy and Chris, your story, you've alluded to the potential psychological impact uh, that going through this as a family might have. So I wonder if you could just share a bit more about what that means for you and, and what kind of what some of the things that you've experienced and seen as parents. Yeah, I think for us, um, it was very much about the unknown to start with. So we didn't know anybody who had a child with craniosynostosis. And... We didn't really understand it much ourselves at that point. So our support network around us were had as much information as we did, really, which was very little at the start. Um, and initially, I felt quite cross with the paediatricians that we'd seen when we were um, when Monty was in Skaboo because it wasn't picked up then. Um, although, interestingly, some of the nurses were really clear about there's a definite breathing issues with certain things at that time and they kind of suggested that there may be an, another reason, but either they didn't feel able to tell us or um, they were asked not to tell us. I don't know. Um, but I just felt like at that point, we, there wasn't very good transparency between the medical professionals and us as parents. Um, and we've kind of left Skaboo, went home and just tried to kind of crack on, really, and thought that the reason we were in hospital at that time was just as a result of the um, tricky birth and kind of just accepted that really um, and it wasn't until our six-week check when the GP picked it up that we we kind of realised that everything started to slot into place so I did I do and I think I still do really have a little bit of anger around the system and how the system let us down at that point um, so that would be I guess my kind of early psychological impact so my experience at work um, involves me working with children with a whole range of different needs um, and differences and it's my job in a day-to-day -day job is about celebrating differences and empowering children and young people to 
um, understand how their differences can be really powerful and amazing things. So for me, I wasn't really phased by the fact that we had a child with a difference. However, that being said, I still have those same feelings that I think most people would feel around how how will our child be in five years time? How will he be in 10 years time? Will we be able to support him well enough as parents? Have we got the capacity to be able to support him well enough as parents? And I think the guilt that comes with that can be quite heavy at times, can't it? It, it can. And, it, and it's because as we started to understand a bit more information, we found out the, the spectrum of what the needs and support that are required are vast and mm. and and they're real at real polar opposites and how they can change over time so yeah. what was being explained to us at the start was where monty is currently but that his needs may change over time and that's still something that we live with every day isn't it and i think we've got quite good at not really worrying about that too much and just very much living in the present moment but it's always there isn't it at the back of your mind i think as a as a concern mm. So, yes, I think for us as well, one of the other things that was really interesting to navigate was that within our group of um, new parents that we were aware of locally at that time, several families were also going through different diagnoses at the, t at the same time. And what I reflect on now is how important it is for every single individual family to get the support that they need that's right for them at the right time. We needed very different support to some of our friends and there was nothing wrong or right about that. It was just different. And I think your journey with essentially grieving a diagnosis, because I do believe that that's what every parent has to do, whatever diagnosis your child is given, you do have to go through that grief process. Um, you, you are doing that in your very own unique personal way. So I think what I've learned as well is that information is really, really important. And I think if it hadn't been for charity like Headlines, we would have had a very different start in our journey. But actually, what was also really important was how we talked to each other as a couple um, and how that really helped us to navigate the really difficult conversations and how actually that's really challenging for individual families. Some people don't have anybody else around them to support them some for some of people it, it's really tricky and we were fortunate that we were able to do that together but there were still times weren't there where you were asking me questions and I wasn't sure of the answer and I I sort of felt like I couldn't give Chris mm. the answer he was asking me and I, I, I didn't know the answer and it, it was access to the right information is what was needed if you know, earlier and what Lucy said when we were in the hospital and much like Michelle's experience of, you know, the, the doctor saying, oh, we, we see there's something that facially doesn't look quite like it would for, for other births. And, and we could see that with Monty and we thought, well, that was down to, to the tricky birth that he had. And then clearly the information we were given, well, it's down to the birth. Well, it wasn't, you know, and, and then as we got more information, it was, it was like, well, is this good information? You know, and we kept coming back to, well, what's, is, is this right? What we're getting, so it's from, oh, it's from a registered charity. So that's great. That's, that's really important. We know it's gone through checks and balances. We weren't just doing Dr. Google searches. Um, but still. But I did still do Dr. Google searches <laughs> because that was what I needed at that time. And searching for more information and wanting to know more and know as much as you can to, to get in 
it feels something safe, doesn't it? It feels that having that, and if you know it, you can do something about it. Because even though we couldn't, you know, we, we, we couldn't do what the medical team, the surgical team did to assist Monty, we wanted to because we were his parents and we felt there was a bit of our responsibility to do that. I think it's just about the fact that psychologically your journey changes and your journey over time is different. And I think there were times when Chris and I struggled to communicate about how we each felt because each of us needed something different. For an example, on the day of Monty's operation, it was a really long day. He was in theatre from like nine in the morning till quite late in the early evening. And we'd been told to keep busy, go for a walk things. And we walked to the front of the hospital doors and I couldn't go any further. I just needed to be in the building that Monty was in. I knew I couldn't do anything, but we could, I couldn't, could I? Literally, we went to step outside the door and I said to Chris, I can't, we need to come round. And we did. And we were really fortunate. We had Ronald McDonald um, housing um, support. So another amazing charity that supports so many families in so many different circumstances. But we just went back up, didn't we? And I think each of us just slept at different times in the day. And then we tried to talk and, and we couldn't. We were just sort of. There was long quiet. silences. Yeah. It was because I'm sure we were thinking similar things. I wonder what's happening now. I hope it's going all right. And I remember writing to Monty during the, his operation. I've still got it now. I don't know if I'll ever share it with him. I'm sure maybe one day I will. But it was a really weird time. And I think we were fortunate as a couple that we were able to sit with that, knowing each of us were OK in that moment. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that that's not easy for everybody. And my background is in psychology. and. Chris has a good understanding of attachment theory and things like that. So we both come at our experiences with the theory underpinning our knowledge. That isn't to say that that was what got us through, because I think when it's so personal, all of your theoretical knowledge just goes out of the window. It it does. And there was was a lot of there was a lot of faith and a lot of trust in the experts. Yeah. And I think that was why we felt so fortunate to have got to the specialist centre because if we hadn't been in that specialist centre, we would have lost the, we wouldn't have experienced the same level of trust. You're absolutely right. It would have been different. All of those, you know, experiences that you shared are so, you know, hopefully if a parent in a similar situation is able to listen to this, they'll be able to connect because that's things we hear, you know, all the time from parents of children with craniosynososis, but also other conditions. Yeah. Um, and I think it is yeah. about being brave enough as a parent whether that's a parent on your own, a parent within a relationship with another parent, whatever that looks like, whatever your family setup is, it's about being brave enough to say, I'm not okay right now. And I'm okay with not being okay. I've got to sit with this feeling for a while and navigate it. I don't know how to navigate it, but I'm going to reach out and ask for some support if I feel able to. Um, And I think we because we had each other to be able to do that with it was okay but I think there are probably huge numbers of families coming through that actually don't know how to access support and don't know where to go and I think that's something that headlines as a charity are really passionate about now moving forwards is actually using that knowledge from us as a parent group to say yes we need to fund this support moving forwards we need to make sure that there is more resources available to our parents um 
and and what that looks like in the future is a really exciting prospect and I'm sure that's why Michelle's kind of engaged with the the kind of work that we've been doing with the charity as well because we understand how difficult it can be as parents and really isolating I think it's the um opportunity even though I've heard Lucy talk about Monty before I think it's just that um being able to talk to another parent about their experience that makes you feel obviously I, I know that we're not unique you know with Ruby that other people have been through what we've been through but I think it's just having the opportunity to hear someone else's experience it makes you feel like well someone really understands my life and what I've been through and what Ruby's been through um and I, I totally agree about the grieving process um and I spoke to Andrew before we started. So my my husband, Ruby's dad, we're now divorced and um, we don't fully blame what we've been through with Ruby. Um, but that was where the sort of the cracks started because we both blamed ourselves for how Ruby um, looked, you know, how... She was born with a fused skull and she's got um, this genetic syndrome. And we're not carriers, myself and Andrew. We don't carry um, the Mwenki gene, um, but we still blamed ourselves. And um, we sort of went in our own directions. We had different ways of dealing with things. So Andrew would work a lot and he'd work away. And he started drinking at that time. I would sit in our living room with all the curtains shut and just hold Ruby because I just didn't know how long I was going to have her for. Um, and at that time, Ruby's 12 and a half now. So at that time, the internet wasn't as it is now. Um, but to be honest, I um, wasn't like Andrew. Andrew wanted all the information. I didn't. So Andrew would talk to the consultants about the operations in great detail and I wouldn't be included because I couldn't bear to hear what they were going to do to Ruby. Um, I just couldn't bring myself to listen. Um, families and friends, mainly families, our families were in complete denial. They said that my mum and dad didn't see anything wrong with Ruby um, when there clearly was. You know, it was evident. Um, and they just, they, they just said they couldn't see what was going on, why we needed to be going to specialist appointments. And that was really hard. And then on the other hand, we had family members taking photographs of Ruby to show to their friends. And that was really hard. It was like she was some sort of attraction, you know, to be viewed. Um, and I, I couldn't even. I lost all my friends. Andrew lost his friends. We sort of isolated ourselves from everybody else and each other. And we didn't, we just didn't, we couldn't talk. We just, we, we just couldn't talk. We just totally shut down um, because we just sort of, we were on like a treadmill. We knew what had to be done and we just got on and did it. And if we didn't think about it and we didn't have to process what was going on, we just felt like, you know, it'd keep us strong and we wouldn't be affected. You know, and it, um, we were, we, for me, I think I thought I was being brave and strong when in fact I wasn't. I, I was crumbling, really. Um, and the same for Andrew, you know, but he never spoke about going through, um, 
having to turn the distractors in Ruby's head, you know, and I can't imagine, you know, how that felt for him. I just can't. So, yeah, that's that's really, as much as it was a positive thing, and Ruby's now 12 and a half, and, you know, she's just brilliant. Um, I just couldn't see past, go from one day to the next. I just couldn't. I just couldn't see what the future was going to hold for her. Well, thank you again, Michelle. And I think it's really interesting hearing both of your family stories and finding kind of the similarities, but also the differences. You mentioned about the information. For you, Michelle, actually the information felt quite overwhelming at the time and you didn't necessarily want all of it at once. Whereas, Lucy, for you and Chris, it sounded like, you know, you were after the information, you were kind of searching for it. Um, So that's really interesting. And it just highlights how this is a really complex experience. And although there are similarities, it also can't kind of uh, assume that everybody's going to go through it in the exact same way. Um, again, thank you both, you know, to the three of you for sharing your stories, because it's not an easy thing to kind of talk about. So um, thank you. Um, so one of the things that I still struggle with now is that Monty had a facial difference at birth. Um, he looked very different. I mean, people would describe him looking like a frog because he literally didn't have any eyebrow bones. It was very, his eyes were very socketed. But after his operation, it's now really hard to tell that he has any visible differences other than him wearing glasses, which is amazing. And I love the fact that he can just integrate. But there is a little bit of me that kind of, finds that tricky in some ways because he is aware of his scar he's proud of his scar he understands the story behind his scar and I hope that always remains um but it's very easy for people to kind of they'll often say oh did he have that wrong with him and and they almost assume because he's now able to integrate in a visible way alongside his peers without any difference that because of his condition he should be a different person or a different individual and I feel quite cross about that at times because it just feels like there's still a societal ignorance around difference whether that's visible or un- or invisible um, and I think that is something that as a society we need to be more mindful of and something that um, those of us that have experienced visible and invisible differences um, can reflect upon with others in hopefully a useful way. Um, and I was really kind of surprised how I responded when we took Monty, when I took Monty out, it was the first time I'd been out with him on my own, um, since his operation and his scar was still very raw at this point. And I remember it vividly, I was in a Christmas shop because it was sort of winter time after his operation, looking around all the little lights and things, just watching him enjoy it all. And a lady came up to me, she literally put her head into his pram and went, what did you do to him? And I was shocked because I was surprised by what she said. And and then because I felt a bit cross about it, I kind of went, well, he's got craniofacial condition and actually he's got an amazing team around him that have helped him. And this scar is part of his journey. And it means that his brain can now grow in the space that it was developed to grow into. And it means that he will now be able to develop and use the skills a lot, as much as he wants to in his life. 
And that's amazing. So actually that scar is a really important one for him and it's a really important one for us as a family. And she sort of stopped and I think I kind of caught her by surprise. And then she actually went, well done you and and, and thank you and thank you for sharing that with me. And I think she sort of must have realised actually probably what she'd said may could, could have been said in a slightly kinder way. Um, but hopefully just that little bit of education. And I think both of us feel quite empowered by Monty's condition now and it's definitely helped me to understand more about diversity and inclusion more widely within our society so I'm grateful for that experience. And I think it's interesting hearing you talk about that experience again BC because I can remember I was I was really lucky because um, about Four months before Monty had his operation, I was able to have two months where I was in between university and, and starting a new job and, and Lucy had to return back to work and it was great, it was over the summer. So I got to go out with Monty a lot and, and it's interesting because I don't remember having those types of experiences. I know Lucy just talked about it post-operation, so you know the, the, the rawness of the operation is still visible, but at that time, you know, Monty was very obvious. He, he as Lucy described, a bit like Foggy had, had this pointy head because of the, the the metopic fusion and it looked like a triangle at the front. I don't remember having sort of similar experiences and I, I, maybe maybe I was blinking, so I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but it, it was interesting, I just can't remember having those and I think maybe I, I was just really content with with Monty, I knew we knew the operation was going to happen, and I thought, well, it's okay because I know there's going to be some form of resolution here for him. But I just don't remember it, I, and I don't know why why that is, <laughs> why there was a difference with our experiences. Mm-hmm. Maybe it says something about what people say to mums and what people say to dads. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I, I think there might be something in that brood. I have to say, cause maybe when when you when you turn up at the baby group and you, you're the only dad, it's you you either get a response of oh gosh there's a dad here or oh my gosh there's a dad here what a fantastic thing it's like yeah but you guys you, mums you do this every day you're yeah. great yeah <laughs> you <might be> special <laughs> yeah definitely. I, I think it would probably be helpful just to reference the fact that you know what what we've heard from. Michelle and Chris and and Lucy is what headlines hears has heard for a long time from the parents and families that it supports and that you know when we five years ago when we went through a a, a quite a formal period of 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 consultation around what was important um and trying to look at we went through an exercise of of looking at with with those families and parents and so on what were the, the issues that were really important to them in terms of further understanding of craniosynostosis the top you know number one was around what were the longer term um, psychological impacts for for families uh, uh, and parents in particular so you know that in itself meant that that finding some of the answers to to some of this and, and finding out more about the kind of issues that that uh, that we've heard about was was you know was a top priority for us, which is why we applied um, with the Centre for Appearance Research for some funding to conduct some really important research that hadn't been carried out before with with families you know like Michelle's and and, and Chris and, and Lucy's, 
because it struck us as, you know, there's lots of research being done about visible difference, but it didn't necessarily apply to craniosynostosis, which might have some similarities with, with other craniofacial conditions, but there are some issues that, that perhaps were unknown that, that that hadn't been explored in in this particular community so it was really important to us that 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 they were you know that some further research and the more that we've gone along that journey of, of finding out more the more we realize we don't know um and that's what's led on to the the you know the first of all led on to the to the um uh the first uh piece of research that that nicola and the team at um at your team at uh car has been has conducted um, and that's provided a platform really for the next stage, if you like, of finding out more and finding out some of the solutions to some of these these issues. So at the Centre for Appearance Research, we have a long history of working with families and individuals that are affected by cleft lip and palate, which is the most common craniofacial condition. Um, and we're really proud of that history. Uh, but what we've been seeing um, actually is that other craniofacial conditions, which are more rare but still relatively common, as Karen highlighted earlier, um, have actually received a lot less attention and a lot less research. And so when we learned that um, Headline's uh, craniofacial support were interested in looking into the psychological impacts of the condition and were willing to kind of get on board with research, that was kind of music to our ears and our paths aligned and we decided to jointly apply for some funding from the VTCT Foundation, uh, which is another charity dedicated to improving the lives of people affected by appearance-altering conditions. So in collaboration with Headlines Craniofacial Support and also the parents and the NHS craniofacial teams, we designed a survey consisting of a number of standard outcome measures, which allowed us to see how parents of children with craniosynostosis were doing in relation to the general population on topics such as emotional well-being and relationships, alongside open-ended text boxes to give parents lots of space to say more about their experiences if they wanted to. And we put that survey online and we distributed it across the UK. Um, and we were very fortunate that we had a lot of engagement. 111 parents from the UK took part in that survey. Um, and shared their experiences with us and we're very grateful for that. So in terms of the diagnosis and in line with what's already been mentioned tonight by Michelle and Chris and Lucy, um, we found that at the time of their child's diagnosis, 93% of parents felt emotionally distressed. Um, that came out in a range of emotions, but most predominantly in the form of grief. And that also 99% of parents were worried about what the diagnosis meant for their child's future. Um, when we looked at these standardised outcome measures um, and we compared them to the general population, we found that parents with children born with craniosynostosis reported higher levels of stress and more symptoms of anxiety and depression than parents whose children had not been born with a health condition. And we also found that parents reported lower levels of optimism, so feeling positive about the future, um, alongside lower levels of resilience. Uh, and by that, we mean the ability to bounce back, if you like, and recover from any difficulties and also more disruption to their relationship with their partner. Again, this really resonates, I think, with the stories that we've already heard. So in terms of the open-ended text boxes, parents shared um, a number of um, additional experiences with us. 
So lots of parents talked about having a traumatic or difficult birth experience that was potentially complicated by their child's condition. Um, again, a lack of awareness of craniosynostosis among the health professionals in the hospital, and that included midwives and paediatricians. And that could sometimes lead to a misdiagnosis or a delay in receiving a diagnosis in lots of cases, um, as we've heard from Lucy and Chris. Parents talked about experiencing extreme stress around the time of their child's primary surgery. Um, and they also described the volume of appointments to be quite overwhelming at times, although they also praised the craniofacial teams for their expertise and their support. And then finally, they felt their child's condition had impacted family life as a whole, um, which included having an impact on the well-being of the child's siblings and also the grandparents as well. But despite all of the difficulties that we identified, we found that only 27% of the parents that participated in the study had accessed any form of psychological support to help them cope with the challenges they'd experienced. We know that parental well-being is crucial not just for the parents themselves, but also for the family as a whole, and can have a significant bearing on the child's own emotional well-being and development. And so one of the main recommendations of our survey was that early screening for um, emotional distress in parents, but also interventions to help parents cope with some of the challenges they might experience is most definitely needed. We also found um, that parents in the study reported a range of positive consequences of having faced some of these challenges, which I think is really important to give a balanced um, perspective. So they described um, increased empathy for other people, feeling more competent as a parent, and also being really proud of their child for overcoming adversities so early on in life. Parents also offered advice to others going through um, a similar situation. They advised them to talk things through as much as possible, um, be really open with their partner, ask for all the help and information that they were that they needed, um, to potentially join support groups so they could meet others that have been through the same situation as them. And also um, things like taking one day at a time, small steps, um, also to trust their instincts, particularly if they were being given conflicting information, um, and also to focus on their child's strengths and to take time to enjoy their child rather than focusing solely on the condition and its treatment. And finally, um, parents advise others to accept that the journey will be really difficult at times, but there will also be many good times too. The, the, the finding that the response, you know, to, to having a diagnosis was akin to post-traumatic stress syndrome or, or is it PTSD? Um, and the fact that, you know, without um, better, uh, di an earlier diagnosis, that parents are experiencing something that, that you know, um, that can be described in those terms. And I think that's something that's really, really startling from that report. And certainly that I've quoted quite often to others in the health service about why it's important that that the that we do um you know continue to look at this whole area of, of the long-term impact on on psychological well-being what i was discussing with andrew before this started because i phoned him to ask if there's anything that you know he wanted to say and he said that although we didn't realize at the time um that's exactly what he thinks it was like ptsd and I, I've had a GP say that to me um, 
like a couple of years after Ruby when I've explained what we went through. Um, and I just searched it up before we came on air um, of some of the symptoms of PTSD. And I was I was ticking most of the things on the list. Um, but for me, and it, it, it's, it just, it sounds stupid saying it, I would not have asked for help. I thought that if I asked for help, um, health visitors and doctors would have assumed that I wasn't coping as a mum and that I would have had Ruby taken off me for a start. And, and that I just, I felt like I had to just keep her close and whatever I was going through was secondary to what Ruby would be going through with her operations mm. um, and that she was our main concern. It didn't matter how we felt. She was our main concern, but I've had it explained to me as well about the if you're on an aeroplane and you know you put your oxygen mask on, you put your own on first before your child's. And until someone explained that to me, if, I, if someone had said that to me back then, hopefully it would have clicked, you know. But it is, you know, your welfare is as important, if not more, you know, because you've got to keep everything together. Um, but it's until it's pointed out to you, you're just not aware of it. And I, I think Michelle, just 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 to come in there, that that's the importance of this particular project and piece of research to be able to first of all acknowledge that that those issues are there and that it's important, and then to start looking at well, how can we address those? And I think the the research has certainly given headlines and 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 others, I think food for thought in terms of saying what can we do next and and of course the next stage from the research or the first stage from the research really has been to say let's produce some more materials that support um, families like yours so that you know we can prevent some of the 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 the, the, the suffering that that you've experienced going through you know the early days um, of, of, of following Ruby's uh, birth and I think the you know the booklet that we've produced uh, recently has, has actually identified some of that and tried to share some of the insights that you've shared with us uh, on this podcast. Yeah, I definitely. I think it would have definitely have given. I know I said earlier I didn't want to read anything, but if I did want to read something, I would have liked to have had something like that booklet to hand to pick up and to refer to and to know that people mm. have been through you know similar experiences. I think also what the booklet does really well is it recognises that your experience is, is is it doesn't have to be held in relativity to someone else's. You know, just because your child has a milder form of craniosynostosis or they may have the most complex form of craniosynostosis, that is irrelevant. You know, you're still going through a process. You're still having the diagnosis. You're still making decisions on behalf of your child that are going to impact their short and long-term future and with with whichever end of if you want to call it a spectrum you're at it's still important and it's still relevant and everybody is going to need the support because they're dealing with their little piece of it. So you mentioned this booklet for parents um, and I just I'm really interested to know a bit more about that so I wonder if you could tell us about the development of this booklet and how it came about and what, what it's intended to do. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the the survey was really a first step 
in formalising uh, some of the findings that headlines have been aware of for a while. Um, it really gave us a really good foundation and an evidence base um, that we needed to show that this is um, a concern. It's something that we need to address. We need to provide more support for parents um, and that it's a it's a really important issue. We were really fortunate that following on from the survey, we were able to gain some further funding from the University of the West of England, where CAR is based, to develop a booklet specifically for parents. Um, we work very closely with headlines and also our panel of parents um, and the craniofacial teams to put this together. And our hope is that this will help to address uh, some of the gaps in support that we identified through the survey. So as the first step in this process, we asked the parents on our panel to describe some of the key milestones in their journey so far. And that enabled us to develop a timeline of their experiences through our discussions. And that gave us a really good picture of the key topics that we knew we wanted to cover within the booklet. Um, so those topics primarily um, included pregnancy and birth. Um, so that kind of experience of worrying that something might be wrong or different, but not really knowing what it is. Um, the experience of having the diagnosis, so being told your child has craniosynostosis, and then actually accessing treatment. So achieving a referral to one of the specialist um, teams, which is not always easy. Um, and so we then had a focus group as well with some of the specialist clinical psychologists from the craniofacial teams where we discussed the timeline that we'd come up with and they were fantastic and they confirmed that all of this resonated really well with their clinical experience of seeing new families coming into the hospital. So we knew then that we had co-created something um, that gave us a really good foundation and highlighted all of the topics that we wanted to cover in the booklet. So we worked really closely together um, over the course of a couple of months um, and we developed uh, the content for the booklet and the content includes some brief information about craniosynostosis and how it's treated, which includes a map of where specialist teams are based in the UK. We talked about common psychological concerns uh, with an emphasis um, on the fact that everybody's experience is individual. We also signpost parents to available support and that is both within the National Health Service and also headlines, craniofacial support and other charitable organisations that parents can access. Um, and also how to manage um, any challenges at home. So thinking about some self-help resources, um, things we know to be helpful, such as breathing exercises and grounding statements. And we also included lots of photographs and diagrams and also quotations from the survey um, in the booklet as well. It's really good stuff. And I know, Nicola, that you've done some evaluation kind of more formal evaluation on the booklet but I wonder if you'd like to tell us a bit more about that too. Yeah absolutely so once we'd developed the booklet we wanted to find out what the wider craniosynostosis community thought of it so we sent out copies of the booklet along with a brief um, survey to a bigger group of parents and family members and also to other health professionals from the craniofacial teams including surgeons, nurse specialists and speech and language therapists, among many others. And we had 44 responses to that survey in total over the brief uh, period of time that that survey was open. All respondents stated that they would recommend the booklet to others and all were supportive of the booklet being distributed to families across the UK via headlines and also via the NHS craniofacial teams. So that was amazing um, to have that kind of feedback. 
Respondents also felt the booklet would not only be useful for new parents, but also, as we've heard, explaining chronosynostosis and its impact to other family members, parents, friends, non-specialist health professionals, and also in early educational settings as well, such as nurseries. Um, so potentially a really wide ranging impact. And as a result of the booklet, um, respondents felt that families would feel reassured that they're not alone on their journey, which is one of the key things we wanted to emphasise, um, that they would be better equipped to cope with some of the common challenges that they might experience, um, and that they would have better access to information about craniosynostosis, as well as peer support groups and networks, and also access to the emotional support that they might need. Um, we also receive lots of feedback that more leaflets like this should be developed. So we've got lots more work to do, everybody. Um, so, for example, um, to help parents um, feel more prepared um, in the lead up to their child's surgery. I think one of the huge benefits of both the survey and the booklet that was that all of this work was done in really close collaboration. So this great partnership between the researchers at CAR, um, headlines, the craniofacial teams and also the parents. I think it really made sure that the work was evidence-based, clinically relevant, but also, and most importantly, really impactful for the parents. Um, and I think that was possibly part of the reason that we got such good feedback as well. It would just be useful um, to flag up two things, really. One is that, you know, as well as the evaluation that's been carried out to show what we already knew, and that was, it's a great piece of, of, of you know, it's just a great booklet that everybody who sees it just says, great, why didn't we have this 20 years ago? Um, but, you know, it's given us the, the, the sort of evidence in a bit by evaluating it. But now the NHS clinical audit teams, you know, they recognise the value of this because it's been produced independently and has, you know, a, 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 an evidence base. And of course, now we they want to put it in their audit system to, to be able to show to their teams just how useful this kind of resource is. Now, there aren't many occasions I know of where, you know, something produced externally has suddenly been embraced by teams within the NHS to say, let's let's include this. I mean, it was always a goal of ours, but, but what's wonderful is that they're now saying, we want to put this into our system so that we can show just how useful this kind of resource is. So I think that's that's a wonderful outcome of, of, of doing it in this kind of um evidence-based and evaluated way and then the final just a, a, a sort of addendum to what what Nicholas said is about turning some of the content which is so so relevant as we've heard this evening into other material that can be accessed um, visually um, so, so we're hoping the next step will be to to meet with um, with Michelle and and, and Chris and and uh, and Lucy's to, to um, actually film them talking about some of the issues that we've discussed tonight, because what we want to do is have that kind of information, although they may get a little bit bored sort of saying the same thing time and time again. But we know that parents value seeing and hearing and listening to other parents. So, you know, capturing some of the content in different formats will make it even more powerful um, in, in you know in, in the future, so that's the next uh, ambition that we've got for for this piece of work that 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 we've been talking about. It's really great stuff. Thank you, Karen and Nicola, for for sharing all the amazing work that you've been kind of doing on this. And before I let you all go, I wonder if um, our parents have anything else they'd like to add. I think for us, um, it's just really important to recognise that whilst the journey can be really tricky and challenging. 
Um, Monty has amazed us at every single stage, even when we were finding it really tough. He just kind of carried on, like in a little oblivious world, giving it his all and showing us his true character and determination. He is such um, a little interested soul with a really creative and engineering mind. And he sees details in things that we would very quickly fail to see, doesn't he? Really does. And and I think he's flourished into a wonderful young person who I hope um, will carry on having this lovely determined spirit as he grows up um, and is really sure of himself despite the challenges that he's faced early on. He's confident with his diagnosis. He understands what it means to him. He doesn't let it rule or make a difference to his life. He doesn't see it as a limiting condition. Um, and I hope that that's what remains for him. And I feel that with the support from the teams around him and our amazing family and friends, because they have been amazing throughout the whole journey, that actually that will carry him through to hopefully advocate for others as he grows up and feels like he might like to take the kind of roles that we're doing now on for himself in the future. And just for me to say about Ruby, um, so Ruby's now 12 and a half. And on her journey, um, much to her delight, we're going every four weeks, we're going to start. Um, she's had a mould um, taken for her braces. So she thinks that's wonderful. Um, and the fact that we have to go to Alder Hay every four weeks, she just thinks is brilliant because she's just totally in awe of all the specialists and nurses and um She's just a really loving, caring child, daughter and sister, and she's very resilient. And I believe that's because of what she's been through. So I just hope hope she likes the braces when they're attached to her teeth. <laughs> Sounds like she'll take on the challenge. <laughs> I think so. Oh, well, thank you. Both Monty and Ruby sound like really wonderful kids. Well, I think that's all we have time for. Thank you again to everyone, Nicola, Karen, Michelle, Lucy and Chris, um, especially to our parents for sharing your stories and your family stories. It's been really wonderful to speak with you today and I hope, I hope you've enjoyed being on the podcast as much as I've enjoyed hosting it. Thank you. It's been amazing. Thank you. really great I love that and it's always good to hear on the podcast lived experience and firsthand from the parents as well definitely I think it's one thing to learn about the research and of course that's really exciting but I think it's an entirely different thing when it's coming directly from the people affected yeah of course and as Bruna said already thank you so much to Lucy Chris and Michelle for being so forthcoming with their experiences and just sharing them with us so candidly yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. And thank you to Nicola and Karen, too, for coming on the episode today and sharing all the wonderful work that they've done and they continue to do in this area. And I think that's all we have time for for today. That's right. Well, as ever, thank you so much for listening to Appearance Matters, the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do remember to share, subscribe, rate and review. It helps other people find the podcast and it gives us a little boost as well. 
It really does. And remember, you can keep up to date with our centre's work on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. All the links are in our bio. Well, until next time, bye! Bye.